You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. In the late 1980s, the horrifying murder of Lynette White in her Cardiff flat sent shockwaves throughout the United Kingdom leading to a gripping and deeply flawed investigation and trial that would result in wrongful convictions and a decades-long hunt for a killer. This is Monsters. Lynette White was born in the early 1970s and grew up in the Butown area of Cardiff, Wales. She dropped out of school and by the tender age of 14, she was getting by as a sex worker on the streets of Cardiff. According to acquaintances, Lynette was known for her work ethic, often being the first to step out at lunchtime and the last one left at night. She even put in hours on Christmas Day. She was also known for her striking beauty, popularity, and sweet nature. Those traits set her apart, proving that one's profession does not define their character. Lynette was adored by her friends and those lucky enough to know her. She confided in some about the challenging circumstances she had faced, recounting a harrowing experience where she had been drugged and forcibly taken to Bristol by a group of men who coerced her into sex work. Even after managing to return to Cardiff, she found herself ensnared in a relentless cycle of life on the streets. While society may often cast judgment on this profession, some individuals like Lynette find themselves in situations where it becomes crucial for their survival. By 1988, at 20 years old, Lynette was working tirelessly every day, primarily to support her boyfriend Stephen Miller's drug addiction. Stephen, who also served as her pimp, depended on Lynette as his sole source of income. How admirable. He would accompany Lynette on a daily basis to the area where she worked in Riverside, Cardiff, before reuniting with her in the evenings at the North Star Club to collect her earnings. The two shared a residence in a flat located on Dorset Street. In the days leading up to her tragic murder, Lynette mysteriously vanished, with no contact made with her boyfriend or her circle of friends and associates. On February 13, 1988, the Dockland area of Cardiff was alive with celebration as residents prepared for Valentine's Day. At the bustling Casablanca nightclub, Stephen could be found anxiously approaching anyone he encountered, fervently inquiring about the whereabouts of his girlfriend. Lynette's whereabouts during this unexplained absence remain a puzzle to this day. Some have speculated that she may have chosen to lay low deliberately to evade her role as a witness in two upcoming trials. Those trials were notable, with the first involving an attempted murder charge and the second concerning an allegation of attempting to procure the services of a 13-year-old girl for sex work. One of the people Stephen approached that night was a woman named Eliane Vilde, a close friend of Lynette and a fellow sex worker. Earlier that same month, Lynette had borrowed the keys to Lynette's flat on James Street, using it to meet clients discreetly. 
Leanne, along with a local taxi driver, Eddie Diamond, who was familiar with both women, went to the flat together but couldn't enter without the keys. The following evening, on February 14th, Leanne, concerned about Lynette's well-being, walked into the Butown police station with Eddie to report the situation and their worries about Lynette's disappearance. Police officers were prepared to serve an arrest warrant on Lynette and take her into police custody as her testimony was urgently required in the pending trials. In response to Leanne's pleas, a pair of officers were dispatched to accompany her back to the flat, arriving on James Street at 9.17 p.m. They attempted to make contact with Lynette, but their knocks went unanswered. With Leanne's permission, they proceeded to forcibly enter the apartment, using their shoulders to push the door open. Leanne was instructed to remain outside, ensuring her safety as the officers entered the premises. Nothing could have prepared them for the grim discovery inside. Lynette was found lifeless in a pool of her own blood, lying on her back. She was located between the foot of the bed and the nearby window in one of the bedrooms and was found still clothed, with one shoe removed. There were extensive blood stains on the carpet, the walls, and the base of the bed. Surprisingly, the mattress displayed minimal blood, but an unused opened condom was discovered on it. Some blood was also found on Lynette's clothing, including her exposed sock. It was identified as belonging to a male with blood type AB. The injuries Lynette sustained during the attack were nothing short of horrific. Her throat had been cut from the right ear across the front and around to the left side of her neck, exposing the bones of her spine, leaving her nearly decapitated. There were multiple stab wounds to her breasts, stomach, arms, and slashes across her wrists. There were also defensive wounds on her hands. During her autopsy, the coroner would identify a total of 69 wounds, and while she had been stabbed seven times in the heart, it was the injury to her throat that ultimately killed her. The murder of Lynette White sent shockwaves throughout the community and triggered a complex and dramatic investigation that was fraught with difficulties from the very beginning. The crime scene failed to provide clear leads, and while there was DNA evidence, technology wasn't advanced enough at the time for it to be viable. In these early stages, police questioned individuals known to be associated with Lynette, including other sex workers and acquaintances. Detectives were attempting to piece together her activities and potential interactions in the days leading up to the murder. They hit dead end after dead end until December of 1988, when they finally caught a break in the case. Statements made by Leanne Vilde and her friend Angela Sala pointed fingers at three men. Yusuf Abdullahi, Tony Paris, and Lynette's boyfriend, Stephen Miller. They would later be referred to as the Cardiff Three. During a four-day period, Stephen Miller was subjected to a staggering 19 interviews, totaling 13 hours. That intensive and prolonged questioning, often without access to legal counsel, created an environment that can pressure individuals into making false confessions. Stephen Miller's case was further complicated by his mental vulnerability. With a mental age equivalent to that of an 11-year-old, he was more susceptible to suggestion and coercion during the interrogations. Stephen initially made 307 denials before ultimately confessing to the crime and implicating the other men. The relentless pressure applied during interviews, coupled with his mental disadvantage, may have worn down his resistance and led to a false confession. 
The trial began on May 14, 1990, and it became the longest murder trial in British legal history, spanning a total of 197 days. On November 22nd, the Cardiff Three were found guilty of Lynette's murder. Each was sentenced to life in prison. Doubts about the validity of the conviction started to emerge in early 1991. Investigative journalists began questioning the safety of the convictions, and in May of that year, two of the convicted men were granted leave to appeal while Stephen was initially denied. One investigative journalist was able to uncover two witnesses with alibis for Stephen who had not been called during the trial. That discovery prompted the involvement of more people, people that were convinced that these three men were locked up for a crime they hadn't committed. In December of 1992, the Court of Appeals scrutinized an audio recording of Stephen's police interrogation. It was argued that the investigator's conduct during the interview was oppressive and that the confessions were unreliable. With the interviews inadmissible as evidence, all three men had their convictions declared unsafe and unsatisfactory. They were released and sought to rebuild their lives after the wrongful conviction. Years after the release of the Cardiff Three, in September of 2000, the case was officially reopened by law enforcement authorities. Fresh evidence, including new forensic findings, sparked hope for a breakthrough in the case. Forensic scientists were able to obtain a reliable DNA profile from the crime scene, and South Wales police employed a cutting-edge technique known as familial DNA searching, also referred to as genetic genealogy. That method had proven successful in identifying other criminals and offered the potential to identify the killer in Lynette's case. That search resulted in a partial DNA match with a 14-year-old who had not been born at the time of the murder. The breakthrough from familial DNA searching led to the teenager's uncle, a man named Jeffrey Gafour. Jeffrey emerged as a highly unexpected suspect in the case. With no prior criminal record and a willingness to cooperate, he willingly provided a DNA sample for testing. On the surface, Jeffrey appeared to be an ordinary, unassuming individual, displaying no outward signs of violent tendencies, let alone the capacity for committing such a heinous murder. DNA, however, proved otherwise when the results came back as a match. Jeffrey was subsequently arrested on February 28, 2003. Upon his arrest, Jeffrey provided a chilling insight into the circumstances surrounding Lynette's murder. He admitted that he had initially paid for sex, but changed his mind when he saw the state of Lynette's flat. When she refused to refund his payment, a violent altercation ensued, resulting in her death. During his court appearance, Jeffrey's confession became a pivotal moment in the case. It was a dramatic revelation when he took a deep breath and declared, quote, Just for the record, I did kill Lynette White. I have been waiting for this for 15 years. Whatever happens to me, I deserve it. That chilling admission marked the culmination of a long and painful journey towards justice. Jeffrey Gafour was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 12 years and 8 months. In 2023, it was recommended that he could be allowed out on day release, but after a parole board review, he was deemed unsuitable. He remains behind bars to this day. The aftermath of the Lynette White case was marked by a series of legal actions and investigations that aimed to address the miscarriage of justice and the issues surrounding the case. In 2007, witnesses from the original murder were charged with perjury. Three of them were found guilty and sentenced to 18 months in prison. The judge acknowledged their undue pressure from the police, but emphasized the gravity of perjury as an offense against the justice system. 
In 2009, a significant police corruption trial began involving serving and former officers. However, the trial collapsed in 2011 due to the disappearance of crucial documents. Oh, how convenient. An investigation into the collapse of the police corruption trial aimed to explore why no one had been held responsible for the miscarriage of justice. Former officers and others filed a lawsuit against South Wales Police. The case included claims of malicious prosecution, false imprisonment, and police conduct. In 2016, the case was dismissed, but doubts about police conduct lingered. Lynette's case sheds light on the complex intricacies of our legal system. It serves as a poignant reminder that every individual, regardless of their circumstances, deserves equal access to justice. Yet, even with the exoneration of the Cardiff Three and justice for Lynette bringing closure to her loved ones, a haunting question emerges. What compels an assuming individual to commit such a shocking act of violence, turning them into a monster? If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.